You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, March 20th, the Washington Post brought together pioneering researchers, business leaders, and elected officials for Transformers Artificial Intelligence. This live news event focused on advances in technology that are poised to reshape the way we live and work. In this segment, Jack Clark, Strategy and Communications Director at OpenAI, Melinda Tombay, Founding Co-Director of the Center for Artificial Intelligence in Society at the University of Southern California, and Meredith Whitaker, the Co-Founder and Executive Director of AI Now Institute, sat down with The Washington Post's Jeremy Gilbert to examine the ethical and societal implications of artificial intelligence. Let's listen. All right, good morning, I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm the Director of Strategic Initiatives here at the Washington Post, and I'm thrilled to moderate our last panel of the morning on the ethical and social implications of artificial intelligence. I'm joined by a real esteemed panel of experts. Jack Clark is the Director of Communications and Strategy at OpenAI, which is a nonprofit AI research company. Meredith Whitaker is the co-founder and executive director of the AI Now Institute at NYU University. And Milan Tambay is the founding co-director of the Center for Artificial Intelligence and Society and the director of Team Core Research Group on Artificial Intelligence and Multi-Agent Systems at the University of Southern California. Thank you all for being here. If you have any questions for our speakers, please tweet them to us using the hashtag Transformers, and I'm going to get the discussion started right now. So this is an interesting group with some very different perspectives, but one of the things that seems to unite you is the importance of the impact of artificial intelligence, the, the kind of question of how we weigh, for example, what large institutions might have as business interests using artificial intelligence versus societal good. How do we decide who gets to be the beneficiary of the gains of artificial intelligence when we're weighing those two things? So you're starting with the easiest question. <laughs> of course. Um, well, well, I guess I'll start and we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, go we down. But OpenAI was founded uh, a little over two years ago. And the goal of OpenAI is to ensure that the benefits of advanced AI accrue sort of widely to all of humanity rather than just the few. And I think for everyone you know, on, the, on this stage shares that idea. It's interesting to me that such an organization was formed at this time because it suggests that there's huge anxiety that it's going to happen in the, the other way. And we're not going to see those benefits widely distributed. And I think that there's a responsibility that the AI community senses to try and play a larger role in the, the kind of governance and the defining of norms around this technology so that it can, it can go well. And there's huge anxiety that the default setting is currently one where the private industry gets to define the rules of something which affects everyone, which I think we should be somewhat nervous about. Yeah, I would hard agree on that. Um, you know, the AI Now Institute at NYU, I co-founded that with Kate Crawford in part because we want to look at what is AI now, what is AI doing now? What are the impacts that are happening right now as early AI systems are being rolled into the infrastructures of our daily lives? Um, so in response to this question, I want to bring it back down to the practical. I would agree with what, what Jack said. Um, but at this point, we don't even have an accounting 
for where these systems are integrated into the back ends of core decisions. And this is why the AI Now Institute called for an elimination of black box systems. So this is sort of unaccountable, obscure systems, not subject to oversight um, as used in core government agencies. How um, many of these black box systems are there? What's the scale like? We don't know. Like full stop, that is, it's a fundamental challenge to accountability. We don't have an accounting for where these are being used, for what they are. Is this an overburdened spreadsheet or is this a neural net being applied to determining somebody's Medicaid disbursements, right? So where we do see problems, and, and we see them frequently from you know, policing heat maps to you know, the case I'm referring to in Idaho where Medicaid disbursements dropped by 30% and people didn't know why because they didn't know how the system worked, right? Um, a number of these cases crop up. These are kind of the tips of the iceberg um, this is where investigative journalists or where researchers are able to get access, are able to get information where a whistleblower, say, comes forward and talks about these systems breaking down in a specific way. But we're in a situation where these are making determinations about people's access and opportunity, oftentimes, or most times, I would say, without the individuals who are affected even knowing that the system had a role. So auditing and accountability are core issues that we need to first build the social framework to accommodate, I would say, before we continue rolling these systems into core decision making. Um, and this is, you know, AI Now just published an algorithmic impact assessment framework for the New York City Algorithmic Accountability Bill Task Force, um, kind of beginning to put some structure around these ideas and suggest ways of starting to audit and assess and account for these systems. So um, the University of Southern California Center for Artificial Intelligence in Society is something I co-founded uh, with Professor Eric Rice. Uh, this is a collaboration between AI researchers and social work. And so this is, uh, we're very proud of uh, this sort of a collaboration that's interdisciplinary, but really with social workers who are um, you know, out there in the field. And so the kinds of, uh, so the grand vision is um, AI to address sort of the grand challenges of uh, the American Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare, ending homelessness, achieving equal opportunity and justice and so forth, the 12 grand challenges or grand challenges of the National Academy of Engineering. So within those, I guess our focus has been on concrete problems where we can really assist and make a difference in um, working with low resource populations such as with homeless youth or in conservation trying to protect the endangered wildlife or in public safety and security. And so we are focused on augmenting human decision making, uh, so things that are already being done by humans in these organizations but to assist them with software decision aids. So that's the focus uh, of the work that we've been doing. It, it sounds like this is a very impact focused kind of artificial intelligence. Do you feel like the field at large has focused on impact, even whether it's business goals or social good, or do we run the risk of AI as really working towards novelty, trying to solve an interesting but not useful problem? So uh, this is a question that's uh, very near and dear to my heart. Speaking to the research community, I feel that in AI, we need to focus more on impact. And it's because the, you know, when we publish and so forth, novelty is given a higher weight <laughs> and impact is not. And so as a result, but it's up to us as researchers, as senior researchers in AI, 
to re redefine what are important ways to measure progress for younger researchers. Because if the reward system is such that what counts is novelty and not impact, then essentially that's where people will go. But impact, and if you want to see societally beneficial impact, uh, then that's something that we as researchers need to define as an evaluation criteria uh, so that people speak to that and do research in that area. I'd just like to jump in on this quickly with a, a tangible example. So along with OpenAI, I also do a project called the AI Index, which is about tracking progress in AI. And what you discover there is there's this premium placed on novelty that means that we think AI is progressing in some way faster than it is. And I'll give you a specific kind of specific example. Last November, Alibaba and Microsoft claimed they'd reached human performance on question answering on a Stanford data set called Squad. You don't need to know too much about it other than the fact that they issued press releases saying they'd reached human level and you know machines could now understand paragraphs of text as well as a human and everyone got very excited and thought well I guess that's done now we can move on to other stuff. And the Allen AI Institute, which is from Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, just released a new data set called ARC, which also tests common sense reasoning over natural language. And every single existing technique, including the ones that do well on Squad, totally fail to do anything interesting on ARC. And their performance <laughs> is maybe they get it right 25% of the time. So that's subhuman. Human level is meant to be 90%. And so I think that by prioritizing like the new new thing you you risk making us think that a AI is progressing faster than it is and b it sort of subverts the effect of doing useful stuff that actually works in the real world and I think it's it's important especially for you you know in your position here at the Washington Post to always be pushing companies to say but what does it actually do that that's useful and I guess we are not saying that novelty has no value obviously you're saying complement or or you know add additional uh, weight on social impact so there's more balance uh, and not just sort of pure novelty and there are there is research going on but i feel not enough and we could do more to encourage that oh, please um just a quick addition there i would i would agree with both milan and jack around sort of novelty driving a kind of warped understanding of ai progress um, I do maybe want to take it back to this term impact and pick that apart a little bit because I actually see the recent AI boom being a recognition that you could impact bottom lines by commercializing this technology, right? And there's a lot of people who've been working since around 2012, but sort of an increasing exponential arc to figure out how do we market AI products. So when I talk about black boxes deployed in core government agencies, the chain of title there is often to vendors who are selling you know, extreme promises based on the capabilities of systems that probably haven't been tested in the populations they're going to impact. So there's an issue here, I think, not with you know, AI as having no impact, but with the impact as you know, being measured by bottom lines in you know, sleek tech conference rooms. And actually, there's kind of an air gap between that and the environments that are actually being you know, significantly shaped by the determinations of these systems at scale. So how do we close that gap? How do we get from saying there are specific researchers or engineers who are designing these algorithms that they are then either placing in a black box or in maybe in some cases exposing to having a voice from the people who are being impacted by those algorithms? What's the way that we close that? So at least for us, one major uh, way of trying to do this is through immersion. 
So our students, uh, our, myself or others, we actually want to go to the location where the impact is to be measured and work with the people there. It's problem-centered. It's coming from the domain. And so when it comes to conservation, we've actually patrolled in forests in Malaysia and so forth to really understand what is really the problem or go to the forest in Uganda. Um, with working with the homeless shelters in Los Angeles. So be there, uh, the you know, we are working with social workers. It's fundamentally interdisciplinary. It just can't be AI researchers figuring this all out by ourselves. And I always uh, try to think about, uh, you know, showing humility, so working with public safety or security, working with the Coast Guard, uh, for example, that, you know, we can't be sitting in LA at USC and just saying, we know better how to drive your boat, so we are going <laughs> to tell you. We really need to go beyond the boats in New York and understand how they work, and so that we can develop algorithms that are more appropriate to the location and are, in, you know, are done in an interdisciplinary fashion, are responsive to the needs of those who are using it, and so on. Is there also a question of, uh, you touched on Meredith transparency, but also regulation. So who gets to say whether these, the algorithms being used, the automated approach being selected is, is fair, and fair to whom? Um, yes, this is the multi-trillion dollar question. Um, you know, I think we do need shared standards across industry. I think regulation could absolutely be helpful in some of these cases. Um, I think we need to have sort of a clear-eyed understanding that we need to validate before we try in high-stakes domains. Now, we're in a situation where the acceleration of commercialized tech has had resources behind it for, you know, a couple of decades. Um, we are not in the same situation where the research field that is looking at the nuances of measuring lived impact across, you know, dynamic contextual domains has had the same amount of acceleration. So there's, there's a real need to center fundamental research on these questions. There's a real need to, you know, I think transparency, I would say, is part of the equation. We need to know where these are. We need to know the justifications for their use. We need to know by which standards they were audited. And we need to have clear democratic processes to either accept or reject that use over time. Um, and that's part of what we propose in the algorithmic impact assessment framework, which is being led by our law and policy research team. And this is an area where I think government has a, a clear role to play. Like, you know, earlier today we heard from the, the senators and we regularly hear from policymakers about how they want to do something about AI. I think measuring and evaluating and assessing how AI is deployed is, is what government should be in the business of doing. I would like the government to tell me that it had tested all of the autonomous cars on the road and could <laughs> give me reports on their performance. And that's not based on the tragic accident that happened yesterday. This is, this is a long-term problem. Like, if I want to understand self-driving car progression today, I need to go and look at the reports filed with the California DMV, which tell me the number of disengagements that each autonomous vehicle makes per vendor. And then I need to build my own spreadsheet, and then I get a view of performance in that state. Hmm. All of the companies have since moved their testing out of California because they don't like me being able to find this <laughs> out. So actually now it's spread around the country and no one knows. And this is terrible. This is like a technology that is going to dramatically affect our economy, affect people's lives, and influence safety. And we aren't assessing the rate of progression in it because the private sector is saying, well, that's too commercially sensitive. You can't, you can't really do that. 
which is absurd. So, so I think that having government take more of a role here would, would be beneficial, and it would also force information into the domain, the public domain, which isn't. Like, as, as Meredith said earlier, if I want to find out about where government is using AI today, I need to do, like, Freedom of Information Act requests, or I need to work with the ACLU, or I need to call up people I know in government and just, you know, go, go and have a beer and ask them about what machine learning system broke today. <laughs> no, none of that feels particularly healthy. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is a pretty serious issue. Well, and the question of, for example, different states having different standards is particularly interesting, but AI has been applied internationally. Mm -hmm. Is On what level are we talking about? Are we talking about a municipal level, a state level, a federal level, or an international level? Do we need international standards? All of them. I'll, I'll offer a quick comment and then turn it over. Um, you know, I think we're oftentimes talking about massive global systems at a huge scale. So as we've seen with GDPR, as we've seen with other regulations, the high watermark for you know, regulatory in intervention matters because you're not going to bespoke that system mm -hmm. a number of times. So I think you know, all of them make sense because contexts vary, norms vary, et cetera, um, but we should attend to the power of you know, smart regulatory intervention. So I think, I mean, I agree with all that was uh, said earlier with respect to you know, government help in regulation and so forth. But uh, in addition to that, as we discussed earlier, it's also within the research community, this is now sort of evolving into more of an interdisciplinary science. And therefore, uh, the need for us uh, as researchers to, in AI, to reach out to other uh, people in other disciplines, and really to force ourselves, to encourage ourselves to do these kinds of measurements. And I'm, I'm in full support of what Meredith was saying earlier with respect to really um, you know, doing a better job of measuring things in the field and really measuring the impact and assessment. But these sorts of things today are difficult because um, you know, if I'm a researcher, uh, you know, publishing these sorts of things, getting uh, understand, you know, getting encouragement from the impact and so forth is a little bit harder. So it's, it's I mean, there is a role for government, but there's also a role for AI researchers uh, to do something about this. So specifically for um, the AI index, which does this measurement initiative, we were trying to find uh, a new person recently who can join the kind of core team, which includes myself, that works on it. And we were talking to a really smart, young pre-tenure track uh, professor or, or you know about to be professor mm -hmm. we're saying do you want to join the index it's a chance to like do something with some impact and it's a chance to like set norms and they said no because i'm pre-tenure so this would not be evaluated positively i need to be doing technical contributions and that that is kind of frightening to me that the incentives are set up in such a way that academics who want to work on impact find it challenging to mm. We have a little trope we throw around AI now to explain why we are so constitutively interdisciplinary across six faculty at NYU. Um, and it goes a little something like you wouldn't expect a doctor to tune a deep neural net. You shouldn't expect a computer scientist to make complex decisions in fields like medicine, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we're really looking at this sort of 
expert drift, wherein the computer science field, which sort of dominates the big tech industry that is driving a lot of this innovation, has sort of taken it upon itself, and I think many people are deeply uncomfortable with this, you know, within and outside of these companies, to make really significant decisions that affect domains that are outside their realm of expertise. So, you know, I think we need to look at a fundamental restructuring of what we call product development, of what we call research, of how we define AI research to include sociologists, ethnographers, legal scholars, et cetera, et cetera. How are those decisions getting made? Uh, is, are the computer scientists identifying problems they want to solve outside of their own disciplines? Are people coming to them? How do you make that a more inclusive process? So I think what should happen, what, uh, and to some extent we strive to make it happen in our center, is to, uh, as I was saying earlier, user-centered uh, user um, uh, problem solving. So you start from the problem. And for some people, it's kind of confusing. Why do you solve from, uh, start from a problem? Why not start from a solution, uh, which you know, is not necessarily the best approach? But anyhow, so um, if you actually, so I can, I can give you kind of this uh, uh, concrete example where uh, we were uh, trying to come up with better patrolling methods for uh, protecting endangered wildlife. In, in Malaysia, for example. And we could sit in LA and come up with, oh, this is the best patrolling route. And the people uh, that we were talking to on Skype were saying, no, no, this doesn't work. This absolutely doesn't work. Um, uh, you know, it's the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line. And to us, it's like, how can that be? So we flew down <laughs> to Malaysia. We actually patrolled in the forest. And suddenly we realized, yeah, you have to walk along ridge lines, you have to walk along riverbeds. Uh, you know, you, if, you can't just walk in a straight line in a forest to patrol, it doesn't make sense. These are types of things that can only be gained by being on the spot in, you know, in real life and sort of rather than just sitting in the lab and saying this is a... Now, I want to be sure there's a lot of wonderful theoretical work uh, researchers are doing. This must continue. I mean, pure basic AI research has to continue. But there's space for this additional kind of work. And this requires us to get out of the lab and get out in the field. And rather than focusing on what is readily available as a data set, like ad auctions and so forth, to focus on new kinds of problems where data sets are not necessarily easily available, uh, where it is harder to, to do that kind of work. And some of it is about changing norms so that researchers think that they should intentionally be multidisciplinary, mm -hmm. right, right, at least for some projects. We did a project recently on malicious actors and AI, so how you expect really unpleasant people to take open source AI technology and do unpleasant things with it. And so to do that, we ended up hosting a workshop about a year ago in, in the UK, and we had people from the police come along, people from uh, intelligence agencies, people from the AI research community, uh, sort of black hat hackers who had in a past life been one of these nasty people using open source technology to do unpleasant things. But it was very helpful, because then you're there with the, the people with a huge spread of skills outside of this like narrow technical domain who can tell you, no, this is like the real problem or this should be your real threat model. And I, I think the more we can do with that, the better. And AI now has been sort of leading, leading some of these initiatives already. I would agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, also we need to, I, I've 
been in the tech industry for over 11 years now, so I'm what they call a veteran. Um, <laughs> um, and I think we really need to examine the culture of tech because I will testify from my own experience, it, has, it, it feels like it's gotten less diverse and more homogeneous as its sort of power has ascended. Um, and I think, you know, as Jack was saying, you know, you can have the best intentions, but if you're in the room with people who fit a very homogeneous demographic, who have shared the same experiences, whose problems involve, you know, the laundry delivery maybe didn't come on time that day, you're, you know, you shouldn't be expected to have this sort of infinite imaginative capacity to put yourself in the position of everyone who your technology is going to influence. So, you know, we, we urgently need to diversify the voices that are informing the development of these technologies and I think figure out how we do that with clear incentives and with sort of respect for the people whose voices and kind of time we're asking for because the kind of open source model of like let the community do it is, is asking for labor that is often not compensated. So I think this is something we need to conscientiously and very clearly kind of you know set up structurally so that so that it works and isn't an unfended mandate on the most marginalized populations. I mean this is essentially part of the challenge is if the people you put in the room are codifying their own biases into the algorithms that they create you're going to a get back the results that they probably expect but b probably not recognize all of the problems Inclusion is certainly one technique. Is there an issue of awareness as well? Yes, yes, and there's many other issues, right? We're, we're talking about one issue that is sort of problematic. Um, there's issue with not examining the data sets you use, right? Um, are you using you know, data collected by the Baltimore Police Department's gun tracking task force, which is now under investigation for criminal conspiracy, planting drugs on suspect. Like this is you know, one of the largest kind of police, you know, uh, misconduct cases in the country, are we then deploying predictive policing that would use that data as ground truth to determine who looks like a criminal or not, right? There's, there's a lot more investigation we need to do on what are the fundamental claims being made in the data, what is the history, who, who builds the classifiers in the algorithm, what is the viewpoint that is imparted there, then what is the context in which this is, would use, and what are the sort of power asymmetries and other issues that might attend sort of, you know, a cop getting a score on a tablet and then applying that to policing work, for one example. So I guess in, in our work, and I, the focus is more on augmenting uh, humans who are making decisions in very complicated situations. So if you're trying to spread information about HIV prevention, which is one of the problems we're working on, who are the right youth to select uh, in a homeless shelter to spread that information? This is a task where you're looking at the social network trying to figure out who are the right people. These kinds of tasks are already being done by human beings. We're augmenting their capabilities. But we want to achieve the right kind of balance, not over-prescribed, so the right level of autonomy. Um, if you are trying to uh, tell rangers in Uganda that uh, you know, this is where you're going to find snares, well, the, you, know, you can give them a certain area, say 500 meter by 500 meter area, so this is where you're going to find it. We're not, we, we don't have the ability to tell them, well, you're going to find it under this tree. I mean, they are experts in that domain, and we should harness their expertise where possible and leave AI to do what it knows best. And understanding this right level of balance between the teamwork between humans and AI is also an important aspect of research as we go forward. And I think this is, from the sort of what we've been talking about, about the narrowness of the AI community sometimes, I, I, I frequently have conversations with 
you know, perfectly nice people who are talking about an AI research project and they're like, we must remove the human from this entire process. <laughs> You're like, well, that's dubious. Um, and I think it's because we, we aren't developing enough respect for the fact that uh, people are like incredibly smart and incredibly good at doing lots of things and the temptation within AI is to automate the entire process, whereas you're probably gonna have something much smarter in the aggregate if you find a way to have the person use their skills and just remove some of the dull or tedious work. And 90% of the time, that seems to be the better course of action. So the last question I would pose to you, and I think you were very much hinting at it here, is if there is fear in the community, and you wrote about this recently, it's, it's and, and by community I mean outside of the AI community, honestly, it's at this sort of replacement of humans for specific tasks. How do you, how do you balance the fact that work and, and a sense of purpose is really important for lots of people against the idea that there are lots of rote tasks and things that can be done to either augment or, or to avoid certain actions. Where's the balance? Please. You know, I would start historically and just mention that before the you know, mid-19th century and the, the Industrial Revolution, we really didn't have the same structure of work that we have now in the West. So the nuclear family with somebody who went out to do wage work at a factory and came back and the household as this sort of separate realm was not the norm, right? You had family economies, people participated in productive labor, there was a blending between life and work and these distinctions didn't apply. So, you know, that's one example we have across cultures and histories, many, many, many different examples of what meaningful productivity and interaction looks like for human beings. So I might push back a little bit against the truism that with, you know, without a timesheet to clock <laughs> in with, we will be adrift with no meaning. Um, you know, and I would, I would also then, you know, offer that I think, I think we're a ways from total replacement. I think, you know, in keeping with the spirit of AI now, we should look at what's already happening. We have AI, gener you know, AI, driven hiring, we have AI-driven management, we have precarity economies like Uber and other things that, you know, effectively run large machine learning systems to, you know, instrument their labor. So, you know, what are the impacts of these small encroachments? What are the power asymmetries that are emphasized there? And how do we, you know, draw on what we know today to understand possible trajectories and not sort of look for this bright line between humans with work and humans adrift without meaning. I just want to kind of pile on to what, what Meredith said quickly, which is in, in two kind of specific points. One is that, yeah, we need to broaden our definition of work. Like, emotional labor is, is a significant amount of, of work that is broadly kind of uncompensated <laughs> across society. We have like an aging population who need like good social relationships. I would like to go and, maybe I'm strange, but I'd like to go and get the chance to go and talk to people and have that be seen as my work, just as, along with my work at OpenAI. And you know, there's lots of jobs that people would like to be paid for that we just choose not to compensate as a society currently. And the second point is, and I think Meredith touched on this, but where AI gets deployed into sort of middle class or lower class jobs, there's not much evidence that it makes those jobs more pleasant. It actually seems like it makes those jobs 
unpleasant. And I think that it, it, we should remember that because it's very easy to go to these conferences and think like AI is making you know, tremendous strides in productivity, but it's usually doing that at the cost of a sense of human agency. And I think that we can be really complacent in the tech industry about this, but eventually that's gonna like come home. And you know, the, the previous ways this came home were like the Luddites, which was a reaction to the industrial revolution being mostly terrible during, during the time it occurred. And also the French Revolution, which was like fairly unpleasant for the people that have been complacent <laughs> about things. So you know, let's not let's not kind of sit in our laurels and say everything's fine. So so I um, I want to agree with a lot of what's said, but I also want to say that there's a lot of Im immediate benefit that we can accrue from AI by deploying them in low-resource communities uh, for domains uh, like uh, suicide prevention or mm -hmm. substance abuse prevention or the kind of you know domains that are important uh, for uh, low-resource communities, for conservation, for public safety. And these are things we can do today. And we should not lose sight of the benefits that AI is providing there already and you know, not get so fearful that we will stop that kind of work. So that is important for us to continue forward. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I'd really like to thank Jack Clark, Meredith Whitaker, and Milan Tambe for joining us. If you'd like to watch video clips from any of today's discussions or past Washington Post Live programs, please head over to WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. Thank you so much for watching today. That's great. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.